This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, from fake news to conspiracy theories, using logic to safely navigate the information landscape. If you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction, the information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Intelligent Speculation Podcast. Uh, my name is Dr. Patrick Maloney. Um, just to remind everybody, I am a, a PhD level epidemiologist. I work with the Centers for Disease Control in the Dominican Republic field office. Um, I mostly manage the COVID-related uh, scientific activities, and I also assist in HIV-AIDS programming. And um, today, we have an excellent guest that I'm very excited to have on. Um, <laughs> by the name of Donna Bean. Uh, Donna works with me um, in the CDC Dominican Republic field office. Uh, she's a global uh, health epidemiology fellow um, through the PHI CDC fellowship program. Um, Donna uh, has her BS in nursing from the University of Miami and her master's of public health in epidemiology from the University of Arizona. Uh, she's been working in public health for more than a decade uh, with experience in HIV AIDS, tuberculosis, uh, and COVID-19 control. Uh, Donna um, served three years in the US Peace Corps in Mozambique uh, as a community health promoter focused on HIV, TB, and malaria. Uh, she worked as an HIV tester and counselor in Miami-Dade County, um, which is in Florida, and participated in the uh, HIV, uh, or the University of Miami-led uh, HIV research um, in the Latin American community uh, in Miami. She participated in the NIH's um, MHIRT fellowship in Alicante, Spain, which resulted in a political epidemiology uh, global analysis of national legal structures and their influence on maternal mortality rates. She worked for five years as a public health nurse um, on vaccine preventable diseases and TB case management, uh, serving indigenous communities throughout uh, southwestern Alaska. And um, most recently, prior to the PHI uh, CDC fellowship, she was an infectious disease nurse consultant for the state of Alaska's public health effort in controlling COVID-19 outbreaks via contact tracing. So welcome, Donna. I know it's a little bit weird reading through the bios and getting like your whole 10-year career just sort of distilled into a single paragraph. So thank you for bearing with me through that. <laughs> Yeah, that was a lot all, all at once. I was like, oh, right, I did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Sometimes I look back on, you know, my public health career and like these like incredibly meaningful experiences that I had, like living abroad in uh, Central America and, um, you know, do, participating in these massive public health programs. It's just like when you talk about them or like hear it, it's just like it's so devoid from like that massive impact it had on your life. <clears throat> 
yeah, it sounds really good, but also overwhelming. And then you remember like the dirt on your feet or like the smells or um, yeah. how hard it was to get there. Yeah. 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 I remember, um, yeah, I remember all of those things just so vividly. Like sometimes it'll just like come back at me at like the weirdest moments and just sort of hit me. Like, and, um, you know, even is like, massively uncomfortable as working in these types of places can be like in you know Mozambique and rural communities and everything like that or for me working in rural communities in Latin America it's just like the most you know the most meaningful experience that that I had in my lifetime um at least but no uh, one told me about the amount of sunblock sweating and like blood <laughs> <laughs> yeah when uh when I was in uh Central America I uh I got dengue um when I was oh, in wow. when I was in Nicaragua and it was just awful like <laughs> truly truly awful um so yeah I, I am well accustomed to that sort of a yeah. level of discomfort but um so Mozambique that was your that was your first international experience with with the Peace Corps what what exactly were you were you doing out there well it wasn't my first international experience before I went into science, I was actually very much uh, social sciences. Like I double majored in sociology and history and I actually worked in Tanzania two summers, um, but that was microfinance. I did a microfinance fellowship. So kind of sort of related, not really um, development wise, I guess. Uh, but in the Peace Corps, yeah, I was not supposed to go into health. I was supposed to go to West Africa, French speaking West Africa for um, a microfinance post with women. And then as luck would have it, my medical got delayed and I was already interested in public health and they were like, well, French, how about Portuguese? That's close enough. Do you want to go to one of those Portuguese speaking countries? And I was like, sure. So we ended up, I ended up in, uh, yeah, in Mozambique as a community health promoter. So primarily HIV. So, um, when, so when you did Mozambique, you already had your degree in nursing or you went after? No, to your degree I, I got my degree in nursing after, yeah. So you had a, a pretty drastic change in your trajectory based on your experiences in Mozambique. Uh, that just, that, that's what sort of sealed the deal for you for going into to health. Yeah, a lot of people thought in my village that I was, uh, because I was a foreigner, that I was either a nurse or a doctor and yeah. would come to my house asking for help. Um, and I would like feverishly look things up in my on Ginawa Medico, which is where there is no doctor, but in Portuguese. And like, uh, I don't know what to do for a scorpion bite, but here's some Tylenol, which I wasn't probably supposed to do um, in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and so um, nursing was the most, uh, was the quickest way, uh, least expensive way to get clinical experience. And then uh, couple that with public health, like with a master's in public health um, to do this work. See, that's so interesting because my career trajectory, I was on a very similar trajectory as you were. I was, I studied political science in my undergraduate degree and um, always had this idea that I would work on maybe international development or uh, something along those lines. Um, so that was my interest, that or law or something along those lines. But then I went to Central America and I came back with just like this renewed sort of worldview, I guess, that um, I, I just, I just realized that, you know, for me working with 
people on the ground and making individual differences in their lives was something that I was just very interested in doing. So I came back with the idea of going to med school, but I did my master's degree in epidemiology, fell in love with it, and then just sort of, you know, continued that journey for myself. So it's just, it's really interesting because I feel like if more people had these sort of experiences, like we're able oh, right. to, to go out, go abroad, work with work with real real people i think it sort of humanizes the suffering that you hear about in the news or that you read about or anything along those lines i think that people can just so easily like disillusion themselves or like distance themselves and be like well these aren't really like my problems or these aren't really that bad it's just when you hear like for COVID, for example when you hear like the numbers of people who are who have died or the numbers of infections like those are just abstract numbers right it's yeah. like when you really like meet people and you know share in their pain share and their suffering and their journeys that that you sort of get this changed like divergent perspective I guess yeah I mean uh for me my focus has always kind of been on women um mm -hmm. in in terms of health obviously providing health to everyone but like women and children especially around the world don't have um as many rights uh I, when I was studying microfinance um I, well, actually, yeah, I wrote a thesis for my sociology degree um, comparing Kenya and Tanzania and how most, in most African countries, women cannot legally hold land or, or inherit land, um, even though they often do a lot of the work. Um, so that, and then just like my own family story with my mom, um, having been an immigrant um, and crossing without papers from Mexico. Uh, yeah, kind of that, that whole, that was what inspired me to go to, um, Peace Corps. I um, mean, even if you don't have, uh, financial means, unless you have to stay and sort of stay in the States and maybe help out family members with, with real money, because I was only making $200 a month. Um, if you have student loans, uh, they are now, Pep, Pep Park, Peace Corps has finally, uh, gotten with the times and you can count those three years or two years of service um towards loan forgiveness programs um and i hope the ten thousand comes through although i wish it were more yeah i'm on board with you there um for for those of you who don't know or who are just you know starting out on your college journey um there's a program called the public service student loan forgiveness program the pslf i think i i think i said it right but essentially you make 120 qualifying payments on an income driven repayment plan and um, after those 120 payments, one a month for 10 years, um, you actually get the balance or the remainder of your loans forgiven. And um, public health is a great field to go into um, to pursue that because you work with a lot of local, uh, state, national governments, um, nonprofits, and so on and so forth. So excellent, excellent program. But I'm glad the Peace Corps is finally counting those, those three years towards public, I mean, because there's, there are very few things that are more public service oriented than like right. Peace Corps or AmeriCorps or something along those lines where you get a very tiny stipend. And what is it? Is it like a one-time payment when you're done of, of yes. $1,000? They finally updated it. I think it, it's still under 10,000. It's, but um, back in the 60, because Peace Corps founded in 1961, it was supposed to pay, it was like around $5,000 and it was supposed to pay for grad school and like help you readjust. 
back to the <laughs> if only grad school costs five thousand dollars oh man <laughs> um yeah yep and then i think when i left i got around five or six thousand um plus i cashed in my plane ticket value and then that got me through but yep that's that's um, just such craziness so mm-hmm. so with all that in mind do you see like peace corps is like a viable option for for somebody who doesn't come from money like somebody who's out there supporting themselves um just gets out fresh from college like doesn't you know have much savings like is peace corps something that that would be viable for for somebody like that like what what tactics would you would you use to actually um right. survive in the program well, I'm not a financial advisor, but <laughs> this is not financial <laughs> advice. Throw a little cow yeah, at the just, bottom just here. <laughs> um, so, I mean, as long as you don't have credit card debt that's going to continue to accumulate while you're gone, mm. um, if all you've really got is the only financial obligations you have are student loans, it, I think it is feasible. Um, unless you know you really can't afford to miss out on on real income. Um, but I think that it's an invaluable experience. I've never regretted doing it. Um, and I, you make a lot of, um, long lasting friendships. I still text almost every day with one of my best friends from Peace Corps. Um, and you learn a lot from your cohort because most people do end up going into either education or public service in the form of public health, um, or, uh, international politics, diplomacy, um, know people the world bank now etc and uh it's really interesting to see where people go and then you can kind of also learn what maybe not to do or where you could potentially go in the future um for example and this is the finance money related um i have a lot of friends who did end up um going to east coast schools um and they're excellent schools right johns hopkins emory tulane you know that's not technically east coast but um and they they did walk away with a massive amount of debt. Hmm. I um, ended up choosing to work full-time as a nurse (laughs) and take courses online, which maybe wasn't always ideal, what everyone's doing now. Um, And uh, I was able to pay for that out of pocket. So, but I kind of learned, I saw what other people had done. Um, But anyway, yeah, I do think that Peace Corps is, if you're smart about it, you can can do it um, and learn a lot um and not go into massive debt yeah i mean you bring up so many like interesting interesting points or ideas like especially with the you know with the sort of educational trajectory that people take because your your route was a non-traditional route but i would say one that was very effective because being able to come out with not much debt not being saddled with the burden of of crippling debt like you're able to branch out and you're able to pursue different opportunities that you might not necessarily be able to otherwise like if you were saddled with like a a huge amount of debt and that's especially important for people who go into public service like us because unfortunately those first few years you aren't making uh you are not making great salaries um, especially not in a fellowship yes yes uh yeah <laughs> Uh, but, um, yeah, so, I mean, that raises a a great point. Um, and I think that education is certainly valuable and I would advocate that people do pursue education, but finding ways to do it cheaply or alternative methods to do it 
is, is just really, really important. Like I wish that I could go back to my 18 year old self with all the knowledge that I have now and just smack myself upside the head and uh, give myself some like different like advice on what to do, because I definitely didn't manage or handle things like as good as I would have liked to. Um, but I did make some like wise choices. Like I, did state schools for grad school and everything like that, got, um, you know, in-state tuition and all those sorts of things and pursued fellowships and internships and got tuition waivers. But yeah, I I think that there are ways to pursue higher education that don't, you know, that doesn't put you in a massive amount of debt. But it's just so important because there's such an anti-intellectual movement in the United States right now, um, an anti-education sentiment. And I think a lot of that is fueled or is used or, this is used for fuel in that argument that school is so unaffordable nowadays. So right. they're like, why go if it's so unaffordable and you're coming out and, you know, these entry level jobs are paying you 30 or $40,000 a year or whatever it may be, you know? So, yeah. The uniquely American problem. I would say absolutely uniquely American problem. Um, we have a lot of uniquely American problems that have been getting a lot of press lately. Um, but yeah. yeah, education is is certainly one of them. But uh, yeah, I and and like you were mentioning before, the ten thousand dollar loan um, forgiveness um, right. that's being discussed would be excellent. <laughs> but for many it's students, drop in the bucket for a lot of people. Yeah, for many students, it it's not going to be that much of a of a difference, uh, unfortunately. But so, okay, so you come back from the Peace Corps, mm-hmm. you decide to get your BS in nursing. Did you have to do another four year degree, or were you able to build on your your old degree? Yeah. Okay. So, so like I a program right. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was okay. actually, I actually looked into med school, but I was trying to go to med school in Mexico. Really? <laughs> um, that would be My cool. family in Mexico. Yeah, I have a cousin who's a dermatologist, um, but I needed to get my Mexican citizenship. And there was like, it was a really long process. And I tried, I had to go to like Mexico and get my mom's birth certificate, which was handwritten and cursive. And like, <laughs> yeah, and they had to like hand stamp it. And it was, oh my God. But um, it was, it, it didn't end up working out, which um, I I guess that's a good thing. I do enjoy being a nurse, but um, I, yeah, I had, I ended up doing an accelerated bachelor's in nursing program through the University of Miami, which ends up being a one calendar year program. Oh, excellent. I, the, everyone, my program, my gift, my, my cohort was very gifted. They, a lot of them already had masters. Um, I did have to take prereqs that I hadn't taken as a social sciences major, like organic chemistry and lab. Um, and I had to take psychology, which I appreciate, you know, anatomy and physiology, um, which I did at a state school, um, or like a community college, um, after work. And then, uh, it was a one-year program. I got a scholarship, but I still had to take out a Sally Mae loan because at that point I had maxed out all my bachelor's loans. No, really? Because I did four, I did like a little over four years to finish my degree. Um, yeah, and they weren't, so I had to take a private loan, which I paid off as soon as possible. Um, God, <laughs> that was an over 8% loan. That's crazy. But, that, I insane. mean, yeah, wow. That's that's an insane interest rate. I mean, they didn't, they didn't give me enough loans to cover my full year. And I still, so they gave us a discount. The reason it's actually really insane to do a nursing degree in a year. <laughs> I would go with a more 
I would at least go with at least 18 months. At the end of this year, I got shingles. So I took my NCLEX with shingles. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was very stressful. Um, you still have to do the full clinical hours. So yeah, it was a lot. I learned a lot though. And uh, everyone that I know has done really well afterwards, but um, year and a half is probably more reasonable and it's still a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, if you already have a bachelor's, right? Cause you've got the four year degree already. Um, but yeah, no, during that time I worked a little bit. I was a Peace Corps recruiter on campus. Um, and then I became certified as an HIV tester and counselor and was working a little bit with one of the HIV NGOs um, in Miami. And that was great. Yeah, I mean, the nursing route is just, is just such, an, such an excellent path for so many people because if you've already got a bachelor's degree and you're unsatisfied with what it is that you're doing, you can go back for 12 or 18 months and start out immediately in a career that is rewarding. You get to work with patients, you get to work with people, you get to make a difference and you get to make a lot of money, especially in the COVID era with like uh, in the era of like traveling nurses right. and everything like that and contractual uh, or temporary contract nursing and everything like that. It's uh, seems like a, a great path for, for a lot of people. It but, is um, if you're not squeamish. Um, yes. <laughs> I, but I do think that um, one thing that uh, nursing school really emphasize that if anyone is watching that was considering nursing school and this is what I tell a lot of people um it makes you feel as though you have to work in a hospital or you're not a real nurse mm -hmm. but clinic work is valuable working in STI or family planning clinics um going into uh some sort of teaching working in a nursing home or a skilled nursing facility you know these things are still viable i ended up going to be a public health nurse and i worked very closely with the nurses in the hospital but i didn't have to work in a hospital um that kind of schedule doesn't always work for everyone um and sometimes um and i wanted um i i ended up getting a sort of nursing residency some hospitals offer that, not all of them do, but where you are given more training past like four to six weeks. I know a lot of people who are hired out of nursing school and were expected to just start working. Um, but you do need some more guidance. Um, just like with most careers, you have a transition period or probationary period and you're given some sort of um, like onboarding plan and training. Uh, so looking for nurse residencies, I think are, that's a very valuable thing to do as well. So you went, you went directly into public health nursing. You didn't work in a hospital. So did first, could you describe what public health nursing is, what it entails? And second, did you have struggles with your own identity as a nurse by pursuing public health nursing and not working in a hospital? Um, I think, great, you, these are great questions. So I think, uh, yeah, I did struggle actually probably later. And it's more recently that I've struggled because I did end up working in a hospital for six months during COVID um, last year. But uh, I always knew I wanted to work in public health. Like from the before I even did Peace Corps, I was like, I'm going to get my master's in public health. It took me 10 years, uh, almost. Well, yeah, since I started Peace Corps, it was almost almost 10 years um, to get my uh, master's because I went the nursing route first. And then the one thing you find is you keep sort of climbing the education ladder and trying to get achieve, you know, or get to the plateau where you're like, finally, I'm going to do the thing I want to do my dream job. 
um, you realize you don't have the three to five years experience. You need another degree. You need another certificate. A fellowship, something. A fellowship. It never ends. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like that. So trying to uh, be okay with where you're at and just always remember to put it in perspective. Um, but public health nursing is uh, nursing that provides services to the individual a community, but then also um, works on systems level change. So um, for I, the best way I can explain it is probably just telling you what I did. Um, so I worked out of a clinic and my first year was based mo mostly in a clinic that provided public health prevention services. So we work mostly in prevention um, and screening like primary and secondary um, prevention. Um, and a lot of it was infectious disease. So a lot of sexually transmitted infections, tuberculosis, Foodborne illnesses, we had a lot of those. Botulism, <laughs> every now and then. One of the few places in the world you're going to find botulism nowadays in Alaska. <laughs> um, yeah, I saw one time it came um, from an event where uh, someone had brought whale meat, like a whale meat salad. Um, and I guess it had sat overnight or throughout the day in a, in a, when there was sun. Um, anyway, yeah. Uh, and so... Based out of that clinic, I then my first year of residency learned all about, I learned pediatric vaccination schedule. I learned how to perform physical developments and developmental screenings on children. Um, so those are things that nurses, quote unquote, hospital nurses may or may not do, um, but a public health nurse is more of a generalist. So I had to learn infectious disease. I had to learn case management. I had to learn emergency preparedness. I had to learn um, pediatrics. I had to learn adult, um, infection control. And so, whereas in a hospital, you're assigned to one floor or one unit. So if you're the, an oncology floor nurse or a med surge nurse, you're focused on either cancer or like chronic disease and recurring um, infect, like infection patients. Um, so you're really good at one thing, unless you're a float nurse and then you gotta get thrown all over. But um, yeah, you're very, it's a niche thing. And public health nursing, you're never bored because you, run the full gamut. You might not like some of the work that you do. You might not like case management, but you don't have to spend all of your time on it. Um, and then there's a healthy mix between like being in an office and needing to document and work on paperwork and chart, and then also getting to be out in the field. And public health nurses get to do all over, not just Alaska, but you get to make home visits. You get to go to local shelters, um, community organizations, provide education. I would go to schools and provide education um, if they didn't have a nurse um, to provide that uh, health or sex ed education. Um, that's a What about your work with, with indigenous communities? Um, that, oh, right. Because that evolved into being a big like a big part of your your day-to-day -day work and everything, right? Yeah, so where I worked was Bethel, Alaska. Um, people can look it up on a map. It's <laughs> 400 miles due west of Anchorage, so closer to Russia than the rest of the US. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually, so we service an area, it's between the two rivers, the Kuskokwim and the Yukon rivers. Um, so it's in a delta an area roughly the size of the state of Oregon. And it's mainly Yupik and Chupik peoples um, and some Athabascan tribes as well. And so it was majority, well over the majority, I would say like 90% um, was Alaska native um, populations. And so there were about 44, 45 villages that we traveled to in that area, the size of the state of Oregon. And we'd have to fly on planes. 
um, to go out to these villages that ranged anywhere from like a hundred people to like a thousand people. Um, and all of this was on Alaska native land, which was, uh, it's all tundra uh, and permafrost. So there's no trees and the ground sort of shifts and there's a lot of snow and ice and darkness. <laughs> yeah, so in, to reach all of these, all of the disparate communities across this area, the size of the state of Oregon, that like you're you're going through the tundra, the Arctic tundra. So it's not exactly like there are roads. You can't drive. So you're just flying in like float planes or or snowmobiling. Like that that's like the primary mode of transit to get to these like these communities. Uh, yes, uh, float planes sometimes. That's more southeast Alaska where um, where you have more lakes and it's like not as frozen where we were sometimes in the river in the winter the river froze over and you could drive on it so you could make short you know like shorter trips but not all villages are connected by the river so it's a six-seater usually a six-seater Cessna a 207 208 um yeah and then uh snow machines was part of it as well <laughs> yeah um four-wheelers sometimes <laughs> or uh, ATVs um so what was the degree of contact between the individuals you worked with and like the the outside world? So like, what was it like when you landed in one of these communities that were like 100 to 1000 people? Did they interact with other communities? Were there other communities around oh, them? Yeah. Or was it in like a, were they like isolated by by their geography? Some were isolated, um, but no. So uh, like uh, Yupik and, and Chupik peoples, they were more nomadic before uh, the Russian missionaries and traders came and then later the Catholic missionaries. And there's like a ton of missionaries that came to Alaska. Um, and then the US government sort of made people settle uh, into fixed locations, which is not part of the culture. Um, but no, so people did do a lot of what we call, like, I mean, you know what potlucks or potlatches are? Mm -hmm. They were much yeah. more elaborate um, <laughs> before the Catholic church kind of like shut it down back in the 60s and started and set up boarding schools. But um, yeah, communities will potlatch. So there are like networks, those networks still exist. Like um, I could think right now in my head, there's like um, Scammon Bay, Chivac, um, and Tuluksak that like are three villages that are right pretty near each other. Um, some of them share uh, fish camps. So like in the summer, people would go fishing um, and the fish, the fishing camp or like their summer houses wouldn't be in the village. It'd be at a better, obviously ideal fishing spot. Um, and sometimes that's how you'd see other communities. But um, yeah, it was, I mean, it's really expensive and cost prohibitive to fly um, in between villages. So for like a 45 minute flight from my home base of Bethel round trip to a village um, 45 minute flight, $600, um, where someone in Anchorage could get a round trip flight to Hawaii for $600. So people are kind of financially trapped. So unless you've got like business and someone else is paying like your work or, I mean, unless you've got a really lucrative job, um, you're probably not going out of town unless it's for medical reasons or school. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. So do do the economies there function differently than the sort of external like US economies like at large are, is it uh, like are, are people, is it more of like a, 
like a uh, supportive type of community, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like are people trading, sharing like uh, resources, food, fish, like all, all of these sorts of things. Like how, how are people socializing? How are people like getting goods, buying goods? Like are things imported from, you know, other parts of the country? I mean, how do they, how do they get like essential commodities, I guess um, is, is a another right. question. Um. So yeah, a lot of it has to be imported, but at least in Alaska native rural communities and areas, there's um, uh, permission given for subsistence. So you don't need a permit to hunt and fish within you know, the seasons. Like in the fall, you have moose hunting season. Um, in the summer, it's salmon and a lot of different fish. Up north on the coast, there's only about, I think 12 tribes that are legally allowed to hunt whale. Um, but you, you can hunt, uh, seal, uh, caribou, et cetera. And if you take one of those down, like that's a lot of food, yeah. uh, to process and keep. So deep chest freezers are very important in the winter. Obviously the snow helps. Um, but no, a lot of stuff is imported, uh, extremely high prices. Take anything in lower 48, which is what we call the continental U.S., uh, <laughs> the contiguous U.S., um, that triple the price um, of anything. I, you know, those little cuties, like a bag of cuties, little Mandarin or oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Anything. I've seen them for like what four or five bucks. Um, yeah, something like that, probably. Something like that for like a three-pound bag in in villages and, and in Bethel, I would see them for twenty dollars. Um, wow. I I honestly, it's not till I've gotten here to Dominican Republic that I've started to eat fruit regularly again because I just I just kind of like cut it out of my diet because it was so expensive and then it wasn't even always great quality. Um, but in the summer, you could berry pick. So yeah, there's like berry picking, hunting, subsistence um, that helps to supplement because it's very costly unless you've got a child and maybe you've got WIC. Um, there was TANF temporary assistance for needy families. You got SNAP. Um, the nutrition assistance program. Um, there's a lot of those kinds of programs that help um, provide food, but the stuff that's going to last long on the shelf, you know, you've got like dried goods, like pastas and canned goods, which have a lot of sodium. Um, actually soda pop or whatever you call it ended up being cheaper than water. If you're going to buy a liter of water versus a liter of soda. So there's a lot of like dental caries, Water in Alaska, in most places, isn't fluoridated. There's like a ton of public health work. So if anyone listening wants an adventure in like snow sports, Alaska is a great place to do public health work. Pays well. You learn a lot. It's very meaningful. Um, yeah. It's almost like the whole, like what you're describing is like the food deserts that we experience here in like the U.S. Um, and for yeah. you know people who are listening who may not know, uh, food deserts are um, are areas where being having access to the to fresh food essentially is something that um is is severely limited or restricted you have to go a significant distance away to be able to access things that are fresh like fruits and meats and all those sorts of things and essentially what you're encountering then is you're encountering these ultra processed foods which are linked to all sorts of health conditions like diabetes obesity cardiovascular disease all of these other sorts of things so there are places like in the united states in what is supposedly the richest country in the world where it is still get difficult to get those essential um those essential um dietary um foods that you that you you need to to exist um that that's 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 so interesting it's so wild to me um but so when you went into these communities yeah it 
were the programs that you were implementing like already established or were you reaching out and were you making new connections to try and sort of enhance public health within the communities that you that you were working in so um in most of these places most of these villages there were both tribal and city councils um in some places there were multiple tribal councils because there were multiple tribes so there's actually like more recognized tribes than villages there's like 50 something tribes um and i would make the rounds and usually stay about a week um but public health nursing in alaska has existed for at least i mean this we didn't become a state till the 50s but um it's been around since the beginning, the inception of the state. And we actually, as a state, were one of the last uh, to continue fully funding a public health nursing program. We did experience cuts ourselves these last few years, but most other states have gotten rid of it. And in the last 20 years, they, there's been a like there's been a a shift in thinking, and people are wanting to bring back public health nursing because, I mean, you know, the public, the healthcare system in the states is um, much more based on react, a reactionary uh, system versus a prevention, preventive system, and um, it's actually just, you know, what? No matter what you think about um, healthcare, it's cheaper to prevent something than to have to pay for the consequences. So a lot of states have started reinstating. Um, public health nursing programs. So ours never went away. So we've always had that infrastructure. And then especially in a place that is rural and it beca you become very tight knit when there's like a lot of survival happening, right? And you're exposed to like death and hunting and um, bear maulings and a lot of different uh, sorts of scary things. So no, I, I could bow, I was sort of like Peace Corps where the nurse who came before me that was assigned to that village, I'd be like, oh, I'm the new, Ma um, I'm the new Mary. And they're like, oh, okay. Or you're, you're young Wilma, you know, my name's Donna. <laughs> so they, they, you're kind of going off of the goodwill that was um, forged by the person before you. Um, so you really already incorporated then in the, like, in the regular lives of people in these communities. Uh, so or when you go in, you're not viewed as like an outsider or, or, or something along those lines. Cause I, I mean, know I am an, I was an outsider. Uh, I am, a, I'm, you know, I would consider myself more Alaskan now than anything, although I'm from California. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I live in Bethel, right. I live in, um, so, so I'm not from the village, but, um, it's, it was good to be an outside party because I ended up being sort of like an ear to a lot of problems and venting that people couldn't do because in small communities and we know anywhere, uh, you know, gossip and news, we call it chisme in Spanish, you know, um, that'll run around real quick. So it was nice to be able to provide like a confidential ear, although um, sometimes it gets overwhelming to hear um, all of the, all of maybe the issues that are going on at, a, at any given time. But um, I think it, might have, it was like a plus to be an outsider at times. Yeah. So when you, how do you deal with that on a personal level then? And, and also on a personal and external level, like you hear stories of domestic violence or something along those lines. Like, yeah. how do you, how do you deal with that? How, how do you, how do you become okay with that? Because I, I me, like my natural reaction always is what can I do to solve this? And in these cases, right. it's not something that's like really, really solvable in many cases. So so how do you, 
what do you do, one, and how do you grapple with the choices that you have to make as a result of these, of these stories that you hear? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be just domestic violence, like anything that, you know, it is that, that you- There's a lot about. of substance misuse in the form of alcoholism. Um, there's a lot of suicide. I think I've known more people who have completed suicide um, than anywhere else that I've ever lived was in Alaska. Um, and that's documented um, phenomenon. But um, yeah, I, you, I had a therapist. I still have a therapist, but um, especially then, um, you know, accessing mental health, I had great health insurance then, maybe not so much now. Uh, and really, I mean, finding coworkers that you can confide in, you know, without divulging or, or violating HIPAA, um, being able to find a safe space to talk about it with because everyone, you know, in, in, and it's not just Alaska. I think it's sort of an, you would make the same observation most places, even here in the DR. I've seen two dead bodies already here um, on the highway. And, and um, it's not, you know, death is not as sanitized and most of, in most of the world as it is in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've been to funerals in Alaska where you actually have a wake and the body is in the house and you go into, and I don't really know many people in the States that do that anymore. I'm, I'm sure there's some religions that do. I don't really know in, in your house though, you know, without. I've only um, ever been in funeral parlors, I think. Now I've never been in somebody's house for a wake, I don't think in, in the US, yeah. And, and, and like, I've, um, I've been, yeah. So, so I guess, um, just recognizing your, your fellow humanity and you probably experienced this when you were abroad, you know, there's problems that all humans face that we don't really think about in the United States that often. And so it really humbles you and you really just get down to like the, the actual essence of like what it is to be a human. And, um, but yeah, not gonna lie, a lot of secondary trauma went, and I was actually, I think I was an EMT uh, uh, for a year, a volunteer EMT, uh, and most of what I saw was a lot of um, alcohol-related injuries and, and domestic violence. And for me personally, like, well, like what you said, I, I wanted to do something about it. I didn't feel like I was helping to prevent the problem. I was just kind of like at the end of that um, mm -hmm. chain of events. And so I and actually ended up, for my own mental health, stopping that volunteering and focusing more on substance misuse education and like distributing Narcan and Naloxone in villages um, and working on mental health trainings because yeah, you have to find what's going to be sustainable for you and your mental health. Yeah, I, yes, <laughs> I, I absolutely understand. Um, yeah. And faced a lot of those difficulties on my own. And I feel like, um, I feel like sometimes the best thing that we can do in those sorts of situations is just listen to the stories that people have to tell. Um, Cause I feel like it, I feel like that helps like immeasurably, like just being, being somebody that can be trusted and that, you know, is there and can be, and can make people feel hurt. I feel like is very useful in itself, even if there is no like actual reaction that you can have or substantive right. actions that you can take. Um, like even just listening is, is, is good, but yeah, that it's just devastating because it's like, you don't, it, it's such a, a balance that you that or it's such a line that you have to walk because you don't want to write off people who are 
like already experiencing those things. But at the same time, the best thing to do is focus on future prevention and education and all of those sorts of things, sorts of things and harm reduction programs and everything. Wait, what's so that weird? Um, very difficult <laughs> analogy where they're like the babies in the river and you're like keep scooping out the baby in the river and then someone's like we should go up river and see where the baby's calling in. They use that yeah. analogy public health all the time for, <laughs> for prevention. I'm like this is a terrible analogy, but yeah, exactly that. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah. Very true, yeah. but. Um, <laughs> So, so how, how was your experience living in Alaska in, in general? Like, cause I don't know much about the, the size of, of Bethel. Uh, so was it a big oh, city? Right. Okay. Did, did you feel really isolated? Cause if you're 400 miles from Fairbanks, the biggest city in Alaska, I imagine it's a small, smaller place. You're talking mm -hmm. about how expensive flights are mm -hmm. like, so how was living in Alaska? Did you find it difficult? And sort of what steps would you take to, to you know, alleviate some of that difficulty, I suppose? Right. <laughs> um, so Alaska, the state of Alaska is bigger than Texas. I really love to be able to say that. It's like two and a half times larger than the state of Texas, not a large state. Um, it's got seven, roughly 700,000 to 750,000. I'm not sure these days. Um, in the entire of people in the entire state so less than a million people in the entire state and i know there's over a million people in north dakota right like so it's very yeah. sparsely populated right um the town of bethel that i lived in was six thousand five hundred people that's a really so, small pool of people <laughs> so, yeah. that's like that would be like a small community like here uh wow okay right so six thousand five hundred people <laughs> Um, yeah, and so uh, even for us, it was hard to get groceries and we're like a, a regional hub. So luckily, Alaska Airlines, one of my favorite airlines, hands down, they have something called Club 49. So if you are a resident, um, you get three free 50 pound, what we have totes. So you know those like big plastic, like snap on lid things you can get at Costco. We okay. go to Costco and you go grocery shopping like all at once. And I would take three of them and I would just fill them with as much stuff as possible and fly them back. Um, so you would you would fly to where where were you flying to, to? Anchorage, which is a roughly an hour flight. So you would fly um, to Anchorage <laughs> with three fifty pound totes, do your grocery shopping, and then fly back. So yeah. the normal the the normal American experience is you drive fifteen minutes down the street to your local grocery store yeah. and you can get what you need. You took a flight <laughs> to get so, the, so there the was numbers. there were two grocery stores in Bethel but like they didn't always have everything and it's really expensive to pay you know like I'm telling you you know one avocado is like five six bucks a gallon of milk is like 10 bucks so you're like let me buy in bulk let me go to Costco when I can no. um no. you end up getting a lot of Alaska Airlines miles they do a lot of specials they even have this thing where if you're an Alaskan and you have their credit card you can get two people get the same round trip flight and the second person only pays $99 of taxes. So you can both kind of afford to go somewhere that maybe has sunshine. Um, it's, it's cold, um, it's cold in, in winter for about mm, almost nine months out of the year. Summer is glorious and magical. Um, in winter, do you face the 24 hour, the 24 hour nighttime or 24 hour daytime or anything like I that? I am not that, that's, that's way further north. Way I, further north. Were, the latitude at which I live most of the time was the shortest day was about mm, four, four and a half hours of light. So the sun would come out at 11 
and then it would <laughs> 11 in the afternoon to, to 4 p.m yeah, like, to wow. like to like three so uh yeah <laughs> um you got to take vitamin d so most people even in in the lower 48 they have vitamin d deficiency so up there i you know i once had helicopter providers tell me like it doesn't really matter you can take like ten thousand in a week because you're probably still don't have enough um i got a sad lamp so <laughs> a seasonal affective disorder lamp where you like set it up behind ideally in your office like when you're waking up like behind your computer and it just shines artificial light at you and you kind of like your body thinks it's waking up um and exercise like you have to exercise you have to get used to exercising in the cold and the dark we're like going for a walk because if you're indoors all the time it's not good um for your mental health but sometimes um weather is not you know the coldest i've been in is what negative 50. Yeah, I can imagine that all of those factors would definitely <laughs> contribute towards ill ill mental health, right? Um, yes. I, I yes. imagine that they would yeah. exacerbate conditions or cause new conditions. And I mean, yes. a lot of people don't even feel like, like a lot of people can't even conceptualize what it would be like to just wake up and have there not be any yes. sun and yes. wake up in the bitter cold in the dark and have to start your day. Like I... Yes. When I, when I wake up in the winter time in Chicago, I can't even be like bothered to get out of bed half the time, right? I gotta hit the snooze alarm right. sometimes. But I, I imagine if the light's not even coming up till 11 o'clock in the afternoon, I mean, it's that, that I can't even, I can't even imagine being able to get up and function fully at, at, under those conditions. Well, and so I think that's, if we're gonna bring it back to public health, well, like mental health and telehealth, Telehealth has been like very much pioneered in Alaska. There's still a Darth, there's not enough mental health practitioners um, anywhere. But for people who uh, need it in Alaska, you we had you had to make leaps and bounds in telehealth because you can't get to all these places. Yeah. So um, I ended up having therapy uh, via Zoom or not Zoom, it's a secure platform. But um, yeah, like, because otherwise, when my therapist, my in-person therapist left, I was like, what am I going to do? And I got transferred to someone else. And thank God for that. Or, or even when I went to the hospital, because I ended up getting, um, I'm on anxiolytics, it's also an antidepressant, so two for one. But um, when you take medication, we would, I would have to go see like a mental, like a psych, psychiatric nurse practitioner in the hospital, but on a screen, right? Because they were in Montana because it's Alaska and you don't have people there in person. So for, for anybody who's listening who may not know, if you haven't been able to pick it up by now, telehealth is essentially something that connects uh, providers to patients electronically. So this would be, you know, I mean, we're, we're all pretty comfortable living in the virtual world right now, but this is something that's been taking place for, for many years before that on secure platforms um, that can connect patients and providers virtually, like via these type of Zoom calls, like only under different secure programs. So yes, very essential um, in many rural parts of the United States, um, including Alaska, which is essentially outside of a few cities, I mean, one of uh, probably the most rural state that we that we have in the union and with the most disparate yeah. populations and everything um yeah that I, I can imagine that being crucially important so mm -hmm. with the healthcare system in alaska are you asked to take on 
more duties as a nurse than you would anticipate taking on in other places. Because I imagine that the number of physicians in Alaska is probably disproportionately low. So the burden on nurses or the expectation of nurses is probably higher. Like, it, was, that, was that your experience out there? Yes. Yeah, there's very low numbers, uh, at least in rural areas, very low numbers of dentists, um, physicians, um, physicians assistants. Uh, so yeah, um, I, nurses well before me in like the nineties were doing pap smears. They were doing cultures. They were placing, um, like nephilons, a nurse, nurses and nurse practitioners. Um, I legally we have, so the state of Alaska and its constitution and it's legis, uh, and it's, um, what's it? Legis, not legislature anyways. And it's, so in its statutes and it's okay. legal statutes, um, there is, they've written into it that public health and public health nursing um, can, can take these extra steps um, and, and sort of expand your scope of practice. Like technically, so otoscope and ophthalmoscope, right? Um, those are- uh, Eye and ear scopes, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm screening, I'm just screening for abnormalities. So all I'm, I'm not diagnosing, but I'm screening for abnormalities. And that's not what regular nurses do. That's a nurse practitioner, mid-level and higher um, sort of thing to do. And then sometimes if I'm the only person in the village that has any clinical background, guess who is looking at that appendicitis scar to see if it's infected? Guess who's looking at the mastitis while I'm vaccinating your kids? It's me. So I, there's still like a little bit of everything. And like, a lot of it was like, mm, we should call a doctor. Um, but there's also, because of the lack, so it's not just nurses filling this gap. Um, there's something called community health aid program. And then there's also a dental health aid program and it's unique to Alaska. In particular, the dental health, health aid program. Um, the dentists tried to get rid of it, but the Alaskan um, government saw that most dentists aren't moving to rural Alaska. So yeah, we're going to need some sort of capacity and human resources to fill cavities, to do cleanings, to diagnose, to be able to refer out and actually see people for when they have um, any sort of um, dental issue. So there are community health aides that are, that practice at various levels, one through four, and then you have a, com a community health aid practitioner and basically at the same level as a nurse practitioner. Um, but they also rely on, on telehealth. So they'll call in a doctor. If there's an emergency, they will FaceTime essentially a doctor and help them diagnose whatever emergency is going on until transportation can get there, um, which at times can take hours, just like in the rural South, any other rural place, sometimes an ambulance will take hours and you have to keep people alive for hours until they get to a hospital. Um, so, so there's a broad network of other kinds of healthcare providers that fill the gaps. So how does that uh, deal with, or how do you all deal with um, like medical malpractice or like culpability for, for these sorts of things? Because I can see that being, being something that could potentially be an issue, right? Um, because nurses and community health aides typically don't carry the same level of protection as physicians do with those sort of medical malpractices yet you're being asked to perform some of the duties that physicians would, would normally perform. So do you have some sort of level of personal culpability for, for anything that may go wrong under these circumstances? I, not that I'm aware, like, uh, let's see, I luckily was never in this uh, situation. Um, I do what I okay. What little I do know is that there. Well, for example, there are good Samaritan laws. Um, 
in most places, Alaska is one of them. So if you're intending to do something good, you know, you're not going to be held liable um, always uh, unless you have to, there's a lot of, there's rigorous steps um, that you have to go through like negligence, like intent um, to, to harm, et cetera, to be considered um, guilty of, of, of harming someone. But uh, Good Samaritan laws in terms of um, administering naloxone, that was one that was recently passed. Um, so- Naloxone is a uh, overdose drug, For right? opioids, right. Oh, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting too, because the Indian Health Service, so we had state and public and private uh, hospitals, and then you also have Indian Health Service hospitals. Um, and so those technically, you know, a government hospital and, and, and an, an IHS hospital counts as, a, as a, its own sovereign entity. So you, it's a very different system if you're gonna try and do malpractice suits through Indian Health Services. That's all, that's my limited knowledge. That's all my limited knowledge. I don't know. I was luckily never in that position, but. Man. Yeah. So, so I, I just have a question in general. Um, yeah. You've lived in a lot of different places. You've spent a lot of different, a lot of time in different places. What enables you to do that? Because a lot of people I don't think are built that way, right? Because when we go to different places, we we're, we feel displaced, right? I right. mean, the people are different than us. The languages are different than us and some are, are different than the ones that we speak in some cases. The cultures are vastly different. So when you're going and when you're living in all of these different places, how do you adapt? Like what, what tactics do you use to sort of ingrain yourself and make your make yourself a home in, in the areas that you're in so i think two big things are responsible for my being able to like sort of be a, a successful nomad uh yeah it is hard um it's lonely but i so i grew up uh bicultural, biracial. I don't even, you know, my mom, my mother's from Mexico, my dad's um, from the States. They both look very different, but I grew up with Spanish and English um, and never really fitting in. And so I think that despite that being terrible as a child and into my adolescence, and then even somewhat into my early twenties, um, it's actually proven to be like a gift because uh, I never fit in. So I'm more empathetic to people who may also not fit in. Uh, and, and you just kind of get used to floating. Um, sometimes it's hard. And then the other thing, which may or may not be appropriate to say, but, um, my family, I, I don't really have a strong family background. There was, um, you know, there's not a lot of cohesion. Um, so I know that's unique, uh, to me. And, um, I, so it kind of gave me more skills in terms of finding, making my own family, right. And finding friends and, um, and trying to connect with people in different ways. So I've had lots of years of practice. So I think those things have helped. Um, but yeah, for example, I've lived in mostly tropical places, uh, Miami, Mozambique, uh, California's Mediterranean is still very, you know, mild climate, but Alaska, like you really have to, that is some special gear that you need, right? And a special headset and so, or mindset. So you have to, um, I don't know, how, you know, also cultivating strong mental health and self-care practices. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So do you see yourself continuing along this path of global health 
and if so, like, where do you see yourself branching in the future? Like, will you be continuing to work with the CDC? Or are you going to look into other organizations, non-governmental or otherwise? Um, in like, where would you see yourself potentially working next? Because our fellowship right. is time limited at three years, um, and eventually it will come to an end. So, what are what are the plans post fellowship? Uh that's a great question. I so someone recently asked me about this, um, and I said I love being a nurse and I love public health, but I don't know if government is like the best fit for me. <laughs> always, um, Alaska. I worked for the for the government um, during COVID. I mean, I worked for the government the whole time, but it was a little more. I was a little more autonomous, you know, in Bethel um, as a as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I've lost contact with patients and individuals. And I think that's really where healthcare, where you could, like you had said earlier, where you can do the most good and where we meet each other as just regular humans and listen to each other. Um, I'm not for politics. Public and, health has unfortunately work. become exceedingly, exceedingly political in, in the COVID era. I understand that it's it, it's worn on all of us in the profession for sure. I know so many people have quit at public health, and I and I'm hoping it's just temporary because they're really young people, like in their early 30s, right? That are like, I'm burnt out. I'm going to take a private sector job. Maybe I'll come back. Um, I understand and I empathize. I mean, being in the public eye, especially working for an organization like the like the CDC, which gets a lot of media attention, whether it be positive or negative. I mean, we're viewed as leaders in public health and, you know, the public health community, the international health community. And, you know, there's a lot of heavy reliance that that certainly comes with that. I mean, um, on our opinions, not just to you know, governments like us working with the Dominican government, working with the WHO, working with, uh, which is the World Health Organization, working with the Pan American Health Organization, but also dealing interpersonally with family members, right? I mean, because you're, you've come to be this trusted source of information and there's, there's a heavy burden that comes along with that. At least, at least I feel that way. Um, So yeah. Yeah, no, I just, I don't know. I've, I've received just today, I think three texts from three different people in my life, some here, some in the States um, with COVID questions. Someone's diagnosed with COVID and they're asking me what they should do with isolation or how should, what, what kind of test should I get? Is this medication available here? What should I, you know, and I don't even think about it. So even in my personal life, I'm doing public health and nursing. And so if like my job is also burning me out, I can, I can totally see why people um, would want to quit. And then when, when you have people arguing with you, I had someone ask me about monkeypox and why inflammatory messaging was being sent out, but it, you know, the CDC website didn't say that they had misheard it. And, and you're just kind of volunteering your time constantly. Um, and so you have to really love it. I think you have to really love public health. If you're going to become a PhD or a clinical, um, have a clinical position or something, you really have to love it because it's going to take over. Uh, I think Um, that a lot of people going into public health don't realize that messaging and communication is is half of the job now like you can no longer just be just be skilled in what it is that you do or knowledgeable about what you do you You have have to to know how to transmit that information exactly if you can't effectively communicate it to people you've lost the battle because we as public health practitioners like we have no inherent jurisdiction, right? Like there's none, no actions that we can take, whether it be nationally or internationally, 
Um, I mean, the CDC has some power domestically. We had to force but, quarantine in some places. Yeah, we, had to, yeah. we had to force people off planes. <laughs> so domestically, we've got some power, but in the international realm, oh, international, work, yeah, no. everything that we do is based on building partnerships. So we have we have right. no inherent authority, and we serve in an advisory capacity. So building relationships and effectively communicating is is more than half the job. I mean, it, right. it, to be quite honest, is is certainly more than half the job. Building those relationships is so important. And um, that can be really frustrating to people because you feel inept in some cases, like what you're doing doesn't matter because it's something that you work, you know, really, really hard on, but doesn't get picked up or, you know, is, right. is advice that's not listened to or the, the ultimate thing really, I feel like is being accused of being a liar or spreading disinformation, which is something that I had never grappled with before the COVID pandemic, which has become so highly politicized. But to be called a liar and part of the problem to your face is is that's a person really those are personal attacks when mm -hmm. you know you're kind of expect because you expect everyone to buy into like the concept of science. <laughs> that is a thing that I mean, that, that's a big part of public health, too, is realizing that not everybody comes from the same perspective that you do. Like, that's pretty much step one. But like when you have when you have when you have a situation where people can't even agree on what is fact, it becomes very, very difficult to figure out effective means to communicate. I was talking to somebody um, close to me, uh, and this was earlier on in the COVID pandemic, and um, we were having a discussion um, about masks or something along those lines. This was pre-vaccine, and um, I was giving you know the valid information that we had at the time based on the science and the studies that were coming out, and um, this person who I was close to um, was essentially accusing me of being disingenuous or brainwashed or whatever the, you know, mainline conspiracy theory is at the time. But I asked them, I, I said, you know, you've known me for however long you've known me, you've known me for many, many years, you've been an important part of my life, I've been an important part of your life. Do you really think that one, uh, or, or, and I was like, I've been training for this for the past decade or more. And I said, you know, do you, do you not trust me? Do you not, do you believe the people on these, these extreme websites or in these news organizations more than you would believe me, somebody who you know, and you trust and you have faith in? And um, the response was, I trust you, but I don't trust your education. Um, schools wow. are um, oh i have not heard this one no well essentially schools are the the proposition is schools are brainwashing um people into the the liberal agenda or i i don't even know but yes and that's just a microcosm for right. now that is my pup squeaking his toy <laughs> i caught i just looked at him and he looked at me in the eyes and kept on squeaking his toy charlie cut it out <laughs> <laughs> um sorry what was i saying but yeah that's just like a microcosm of the of the of the situation is you know it's um yeah i mean we'll need to be ready for that if they're entering public health because it is not and you don't always expect you know like i'm just randomly i've been i've been hanging out with friends before and someone's like so do you believe in vaccines 
And this is like me off the clock. And I'm like, I'm a public health nurse and I vaccinate children for most of the time. Like most of my work is that, yes. And then they're like, well, have you seen this six part documentary about how the CDC has fed us misinformation, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, excuse me, I'm just trying to live and hang out. Right. <laughs> Can we not talk about this thing? <laughs> well, it's gotten to the point where I don't even like talking about, I mean, I haven't ever, but I actively dislike uh, talking about COVID Yes. I'm not yes. acting in a professional capacity. Like it's um, it's something I deal with every day. I look at COVID projects, COVID data, make recommendations, so on and so forth all day, every day. And I don't <laughs> want to do it in my personal life and much less don't want to do it in my personal life where it's not going to be believed or it's going to be- Exactly, there's a like, difference. Like I'm gonna, I have very little time and energy left over to talk about COVID. And if you're asking for help, I'll give it to you if you're not gonna be a jerk about it. Yeah. Right. Yes. I don't want to debate about it. Like, this is what it is. Like, this is the information that we have. <laughs> yeah. So you, people die every day. So thanks. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's my sister is a nurse as well. And she's worked in hospitals and COVID wards and seen patients die. Right. Patients that she was watching and that she was caring for. Right. And I think it's even more of an insult to people who have actually worked in those hospitals, like yourself, dealing with dealing with patients who are coming in with COVID-19, seeing the suffering and the pain and the desperation and the death, then uh, all of these and all of the uh, sort of repercussions that that has on family members who weren't even able to come in and hold the hands of their loved ones God, while they yeah. died. Oh yeah. I mean, Do you people... know, I've had to make phone calls and tell someone, hey, because every day we would meet all of the doctors, all of the case managers, lab, someone from the lab, someone from pharmacy, every day in the hospital, we would round daily. And we'd be like, how's Mrs. So-and-so? Okay, she's tanking. And then I'd be like, okay, whoever's the case manager, please call the family. And I'd have to call people and say, hey, she's probably gonna get ventilated later today. So if you wanna say anything, any last words, like you're gonna have to call today, right? And, and just hold up the phone so they can talk to their to their loved ones at, at that point. Like they usually have like one in the bed, but yeah, like I they're like, oh, thanks for letting me know. And people are like, it's traumatizing. And, and then I think back to when I was a contact tracer just the year prior before I was working in the hospital. And I would call people and say, Hey, who are your contacts? So that we can notify them. And people were indignant and angry and like why are you invading my privacy and I'm like oh you should get the vaccine they're like it's fake I don't want to do it and then when I'm in the hospital people are thanking me for giving them horrible news about somebody dying and I it was a real my mind couldn't like handle the disconnect yeah I certainly but, understand that and yeah. the fact that that you know even I mean the vaccine political issue for a lot of people people right. won't take it based on their political beliefs and that's been shown like across studies i mean right. people who are left-leaning are much more likely to be vaccinated and much more likely to also think that the pan pandemic is more severe than it actually is so like they yes. almost, they almost they have an overblown perspective of what you know the pandemic right. is and then people who are typically reading light, leaning right, aren't getting vaccinated and underestimate the impact of the pandemic. So it's like, and this isn't just like a like a unilateral like political position where one party is is like overblowing things or or anything like that. Or it, it's across the political aisle. There's there's this there's this uh, tendency to become entrenched in 
in the positions that you take. So in science, right, we're always constantly reevaluating our, you know, assumptions. We're always going through the scientific method, changing guidance based on emerging information. But right. it seems like people in the general public just yeah. have their original positions and then they don't move based on based on new information. And I think that there's no better example than people coming out and calling Dr. Fauci, like flip-flop Fauci or whatever, you know, it's like, he's changing. They don't understand and... the scientific process. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> you want us as scientists to be continually evaluating information. Like before, before 2020, nobody knew anything about COVID. It was a completely new novel virus that's coming out. And of course, information is going to change as we adapt, as we learn more, as we try out different pharmaceutical and non-pharmaceutical interventions. So to become entrenched in one opinion early on and hold that continuously right. is, is foolish. Like it is very, very foolish. So um, I think that- I I can see why people might be overwhelmed by having to keep up with so much information that keeps coming at you every day. It's tiring. Yeah. But that, to not be open at all is frustrating. Yeah. I do have a, I have a question for you because I wonder if this happened to you because I, we both were in public health before this pandemic and I found it really hard to explain to people what I did and <laughs> what public health was. And then I remember it was 20, it was 2020 and I was walking outside because everyone started, you know, being outside and doing outdoor activities because it seemed it was safer than indoors. And I would just hear, it would be a 65 year old couple, friends that looked like they were in their early, late teens, um, you know, just different groups of people. I'd hear them jogging by and they're like, yeah, man. And you know, like the are not and blah, blah, blah. And like talking about these epidemiological concepts yeah. that you know we had known about but everyone else all of a sudden is using it no one had ever used it before and it was so surreal to me and I don't know how what you well yeah that was certainly my experience too it's <laughs> like when I told people that I was an epidemiologist they're like oh so you work with skin and I was like wait where's that come from wait, and what? I'm like oh epidermis, epidermis epi yeah which is which is Sorry, skin for people listening who may not know but Right. I was like, no, that, that's that's not what I do. <laughs> so yes, I always, always struggled um, to explain what I do and the implications <laughs> of, of what it is that we do. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, I mean, these advanced epidemiological concepts have become common vernacular in the United States. Right. Like even like dealing with like r not, for example, or basic reproductive number, most epidemiologists never work with that because that's an advanced right. concept in mathematical modeling so to have that be like part of the american vernacular now is just like insane to me uh but i mean yeah it's it, it, that part is is actually great to me like in my mind yeah. We have so many amazing educational resources out there now. Like information is available to you at the, you know, at the stroke of a keyboard or, you know, click of a mouse. You can really learn anything that you want to nowadays and you can have access to reliable information. But sort of the dual or double-edged sword is that that has now been, been weaponized, right? It's been weaponized to spread misinformation or outright disinformation or just straight right. up lies. So it, it's like this, this beautiful technology that we have in the internet has, was just such a you know, beacon of hope and light for so many people making knowledge accessible and sort of de-elitizing like the, the upper echelon of society and you know, spreading information. But now 
it's just been weaponized uh, in such a such a unique and um, sort of insidious way, I guess, um, by by a number of organizations. So if that's what that's we're going why. to do. Yeah, here at Intelligent okay. Speculation is is suss out the suss out help people suss out what is true and what isn't. But yeah, sorry, what what were you saying? No, I and the same in the same thing. Like that's what it comes down to is relationships, and like you have like despite them you know disparaging your education the people that we know and it really comes down to face-to-face -face interactions or phone to phone but people that you know and trust to to we have to talk to each other and it can't just it's no longer just the internet like if you really want to actually convince someone or get them i feel at least for me and maybe the same for you like i have to talk to people just thinking about i have random people texting me asking me questions and i despite my own political stance or my own leanings i don't care where that person's background is from i will talk to them and i will give them the best information possible and hope that that creates enough trust that maybe they'll be able to see that you know there is a, there are facts and you can trust certain sources yeah. um i think another yeah. important component is just is just not is coming into these things with with an open mind like not not to like change like what is like oh my scientific facts are wrong or whatever no but like coming in right. like from a perspective of like these these individuals they they aren't like they aren't deliberately coming in and trying to you know the, like be abrasive or or you know have these like like misguided beliefs or something like that like there's something that's behind it like there's a system that supports like the information that they that they have and that they're getting and it's important to realize that it's not the the person that you need to attack it's the it's the system that's sort of supporting the the information that they're getting yeah and just coming at them with respect and, mm -hmm. and knowing that they there is a belief system, you know, like with vaccine hesitancy, always asking them like, so is it a religious thing? Like, why don't you want your child to get this vaccine? What is it about the vaccine? What can I tell you about the vaccine that might change your mind? Blah, 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 and having a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, okay. I think that that's probably a, a good place to stop on a nice positive message uh, for public health communication. Um, but did you want to say any last words, any last topics that you wanted to cover? No, well, except to say we need more people in public health. We do. <laughs> because everyone's burning out. Um, but we, if we, we can make a positive change because there are a lot of people who went into earlier retirement there are a lot of people who switched years and so if you feel like just if you want a really challenging and creative uh and not boring career um public health is a really important field of work right now and always yes absolutely i second everything that you say there and um there are well, congratulations of on your new position Ah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I, um, I, when do you start? I start in August, on August 1st. So I, uh, oh, uh, for, right. yeah. Yeah, for people who are listening, I, I'm actually starting a new position. I'm taking a faculty position at the University of Nebraska. So I'll be teaching epidemiology and, uh, and global health there. So it's, uh, it's very exciting. But yes. Um, so thank you. And thank you for um, Thank you for all of your insights and thank you for taking the time to come and uh, 
talk through us, uh, talk through your career and your interests and everything with us. It's it's been very very enlightening. Um, so thank you, Donna Bean, and um, we will see you on the next podcast and this next episode of um, Thinking Critically. All right, thank you. <laughs>